0: Everybody out there in Radio Land. This is WRSP going through the night, and I'm your host, David Robertson.
1: And he's joined as ever by Christopher Cotter, sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for, for the, the History, History of, of
0: religions. religions. And supported by you, the listener. Listening every week, sharing our stuff. And, you know, being part of this wonderful community. This week, talking of international, we've got another interview by Brianne Fallon doing a great job for the RSP this year. And this time she's speaking to Caroline Blythe on the subject of religion and gender violence. Very important subject. So let's pass over to Brianne.
2: Religion and gender violence is an undesirable yet critical area of research in the field of religious studies. Violence inflicted against people of all gender and sexual orientations comes in numerous forms and is something to which many faiths are connected in some way. To discuss her research on this topic, Dr. Carolyn Blythe joins me today. Dr. Blythe is a lecturer of religious studies in the School of Humanities at the University of Auckland's Faculty of Arts. Her research and teaching focuses on representations of gender and sexuality in religious discourses and popular culture, using feminist and queer theories to inform her work. She is currently writing a book about the biblical character Delilah and her representations on Fen fatale in popular culture, and she is also working concurrently on a project that will consider the complex relationships between religion and gender violence. Carolyn is also involved in a new student engagement project called Hidden Perspectives, Bringing the Arts Out of the Closet, which provides a platform for LGBTI student voices within the Faculty of Arts teaching and research community. Thank you so much for joining us today, Caroline, and welcome to the Religious Studies Project. Thank you for inviting me to speak. Now, religion and gender violence is unfortunately a really broad topic, um, what areas in particular do you focus on in your research?
3: Um, well, my own particular area of research is the Hebrew Bible. And so I kind of really started getting interested in this subject when I was doing my PhD thesis, um, at looking at the way that the Bible itself talks about gender violence and some of the, the these ancient attitudes that come out through these um, the various texts. So, while I'm, I'm kind of very interested to see how the, the the Bible, these these ancient texts, speak about gender violence, my main area of concern has always been how the the attitudes perpetuated within sacred texts actually um, what significance they have in contemporary culture, and the way that these attitudes continue to perpetuate uh, attitudes towards gender violence that can that are expressed and held and validated within particular sacred reading communities
2: now I understand that you um you've used this term theologies of rape in in some of your work Hmm. it's not really a term that that I'm familiar with Hmm. um if you could just run us through that and and your work on that sure
3: yeah it's actually I can't I can't claim credit for myself it's 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 a very evocative term that I read. It was an article in the New York Times by um, Rukmini Kalamachi, who was writing about the rape of the rape and sexual slavery of Yazidi women by a uh, Daesh Islamic State, and she wrote about the this idea of um, rape being used almost as a a sacred, uh, almost like a, a form of um, like a religious ritual almost. And the the way that um, members of Islamic State would take Yazidi women, would rape them, would sell them into slavery um, and justify it by using um, various scriptures from the Quran or their own religious traditions and use that to kind of validate the rape as, as almost like, as I say, a, a, a form of religious ritual. So many of the women spoke about the fact that their rapists would pray before raping them or would say that this this was a you know a religious act that they were performing by uh raping someone who who was not um a member of their religious community and so the 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 writer of this piece spoke about this uh, attitude as, as as a theology of rape uh, justifying rape through the use of um religious justification um, religious terms religious ritual and I just thought it was very evocative and started to ask myself you know can we see this kind of theology of rape anywhere else um, either explicitly or implicitly and some of the I mean and certainly I, I I would argue that in the the Hebrew Bible in the sort of Jewish and Christian scripture we, we do see that a very similar use of of religious discourse and religious ritual to to justify or validate rape um one example I've, I've kind of I'm writing about at the moment which is is for the um rape culture and religion volume volumes that we'll be talking about later was a particular text in deuteronomy deuteronomy um, 21 where there's a, a law that allows for israelite soldiers to take a woman that they if, when they're out and they, they they conquer a a different community, and within that conquered community, they see a woman that they like. They can take her for themselves as a wife. Now, I mean, that to me is just tantamount to rape during warfare. And it, but it's expressed in a way that's that's just that's justifying it by um, almost <laughs> framing it in in religious terms. It becomes a, a sort of ritualized form. Of gender violence and and I think that is very much that that text itself is promoting a theology of rape so that that's where I, as I say that I can't claim ownership of the term itself but I think it's really evocative in um, drawing up or bringing up the, the very complex and close relationship that religion can have to uh, gender violence
2: yeah and it's very interesting how you've pointed out how that's um carried into contemporary times, as you've given the example of of yeah. Isis and the, the Yazidi women, um, mm. does have you have there been any examples in your work um where you've come across um, I mean, we often focus upon um, violence against against women and females. Yes. Um, has there been any examples in your work of, of violence against? um, males uh, or masculinity. Um, I think it's something that we need to draw more attention to Mm. in particular, something we really need to, um, highlight and look at a little bit more. Have you looked at that, um, in
3: your work at all? Yeah, a a little bit. Certainly I'm, I'm very aware. I'm very aware that it is an often neglected area of study, the male rape and, uh, gendered violence against, uh, met people who identify as, as male or masculine. Um, I think it's something that, that as I say, I, my own area of, of interest is the Hebrew Bible. And it's it's certainly something that's brought out in the Hebrew Bible. It's it's an event that is um it, it doesn't always happen, but it's threatened in the Hebrew Bible. And it's it's interesting that very often we, we see um some of the same uh, concerns or misperceptions about male rape that I think are very much present today. I still see that kind of contemporary significance coming out. Often um, biblical texts that that, that talk about the, the potential for male rape get seen uh, or get described as homosexual rape or get framed in terms of um, male desire or same-sex desire. And that's something that I think is echoed very much around Male rape some of the, the issues that we see um, in male rape today in contemporary culture because I, I, I think that that um, male rape is, is something that is incredibly stigmatized, is grossly un, under um, underreported and is very much part of the rape culture that that, that affects female victims of rape but it's it, it still affects men as well. Very much. And a lot of that is to do with the, the sort of misperceptions about um, gender violence that get tied to issues of masculinity. So we, we tend to think of, of men as naturally being the, the sexual aggressors and the, the pursuers um, of sexual gratification. And if a man becomes a victim of, of that sexual aggression, then they're almost demasculinized. And so there's a, a huge amount of stigma attached to that and and that's perpetuated by cultures where masculinity is say framed in in this way it's almost become seen as a, a source of shame for a man to be raped rather than seeing him as a a victim or a survivor of a, a physical assault he's he's seen as somehow less of a man and I think that all f- it kind of stems from we can see it stemming from some religious traditions and religious texts but it's also very much perpetuated in contemporary culture it's very interesting um
2: you threw, you use the word um, survivor there and mm-hmm. um that's definitely something you see um in work about um female um victims or survivors of mm-hmm. of sexual violence but that's not yeah. something you see so much in, in work on, on, on males or people who identify as males and perhaps that's, that is an area where we need to sort of change the language and the way we think about yeah. gender and gender violence in that way. Um, yes. I, I'm sorry, I know I didn't tell you about this question, but um, <laughs> is there um, a particular faith you've looked at specifically in terms of males and masculinity?
3: Yeah, I mean, what, one area, one one area that I I worked on with a, an honors student um, earlier this year, and and at the end of last year, we we she she was wanting to write um uh, uh kind of do an essay for me on some aspect of male rape and religion, and she ended up focusing. We kind of worked on it together. Uh, we focused on uh, Christianity and male rape, particularly um, men's ministries, which I think are, I know that they're probably more popular in the US, but also in Australia, I believe, men's ministries are quite um, are quite popular. And we, we looked at the, I mean, she started with the premise that, you know, a ministry, a, a Christian ministry that focuses very much on sort of male bonding, male camaraderie, male community, could potentially be an incredibly helpful space for victims of gender violence to to go to and to find um some kind of healing in but what she discovered when she did some research into the the kind of the, the philosophy the ethos of men's ministries was that they're very often grounded in what is referred to as um there's a a a focus on godly masculinity that that's the term that's often used and that godly masculinity basically evokes all the same stereotypes that I've kind of mentioned already. You know, men as powerful, authoritative, competitive, sexually aggressive. Um, that's what being masculine uh, or being a, a godly man entails. And um, she did some really fascinating research by looking at websites of various male, men's ministries. And they all evoke these um, stereotypes of the, the strong authoritative man. A lot of them use sort of sporting metaphors or military metaphors are very common. Um, the man is the, the sort of heroic, muscle bound, um, assertive, aggressive family leader. Um, there's not a woman in sight unless unless it's like a wife or a, a child who's being supported by the strong man. So, um, I mean, she came to the conclusion that this, this kind of... Um, Community would would be absolutely dauntingly horrendous for for anyone whose masculinity was being questioned, had been questioned by being a victim of gender violence, to to actually find any form of healing in. So so that's the kind of area that that we've looked at so far. But I think um, that, that kind of asking these questions about how is masculinity itself conceptualised within religious traditions. Um, is a really good place to start because we often find that the um, religious discourses about masculinity can themselves be quite harmful, both for male survivors of gender violence and also for perpetuating the rape myths um, and rape culture that that obviously affect male and female victims of violence.
2: Definitely. Now, um, the idea of rape culture is something that you're working on quite extensively I understand that you're editing a three uh, volume series together with Dr. Emily Colgan and Dr. Katie Edwards called Rape, Culture, Gender, Violence and Religion. And that's going to be published with Palgrave Macmillan. Um, and you have one of the contributors, uh, with you today. If you'd just mm-hmm. like to, uh, introduce him and give us a bit of an idea about, um, the book and what you're both contributing to those volumes.
3: Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll just I'll give you a very brief outline of of the book. Then I shall introduce Pryor to you, and he can tell you about his contribution. Um, yeah. We it was actually something that Katie and Emily and I talked about. Oh gosh, over a year ago. Um. Just this this idea that we really needed to gather together, um, contributions about this whole question of how religion and gender violence and rape culture intersect with each other. And Emily and I thought we would we would start with one volume and uh, we put out a call for papers and ended up with, gosh, about 35, 36 really, really good submissions. Yours included, Brianne. <laughs> um, <laughs> and we thought, you know, this we, we wanted to keep them all. And, and the, the thing that kept coming out was um, people sending them in kept saying this is such an important area. this It's so underrepresented and we really need some you know we we do need some uh, literature on it, so we got Katie involved too, because we thought we couldn't really handle all ourselves, and so um yeah we we decided to um create these three volumes, one of which looks at kind of rape culture, gender, violence, and religion from global perspectives, one that focuses on um biblical perspectives, and one that that has a particular focus on Christian perspectives, because that's where most of the, um, or a lot of the contributors uh, wanted to write about. Um, and fortunately, Paul Macmillan agreed to publish it. Um, so yes, so um, Prior McRae, who's with me today, he is a, a student at the University of Auckland, and we met in the classroom, but also uh priors involved in the Hidden Perspectives project that you mentioned at the start. And so I, I was talking to him about these volumes and he was very keen to be involved because um, what, we, what, what we identified, what the, the other editors, Katie and, and Emily and I identified initially, was that there was there were various areas that weren't really being represented adequately in the uh the the abstract sent to us. Uh, One of them, one of these areas was that there wasn't, there really wasn't any engagement with um, the way that gender violence and religion intersects within the queer community. Um, Another area that, that was underrepresented was the fact that most of the abstracts, most of the papers are going to focus very much on subjective violence or physical violence, but there's much less, Focus on symbolic violence, so that just the violence of speech, hate speech, um, and the way that that is really a, a form of gendered violence, can be a form of gender violence as well and contribute to rape culture. And there's also the, the structural violence, the violence that comes from um, both kind of secular and religious institutions, including laws, um, official religious responses to gender violence. Um, and rape culture, and also the official religious responses that come to, um, in with regard to the queer community, and how that in itself can be a form of violence, symbolic violence, and structural violence. So, I asked Prior if he was keen to um, contribute something with me to to try and <laughs> get this. Um, even up this imbalance that I saw within the volume. So I'll pass over to him and he can tell you a bit about what he's going to be doing.
4: Um, so I guess because I'm the the area of queer that is my, my area, my area of queer is um, the trans area. I guess that's what I would be talking about predominantly because um, that's the area I've, I've experienced. And um, I'm not... I'm not too sure about how like the areas of religion and the queer community intersect for me so much, but I have noticed a definite trend in the queer community that people, there's a push, uh, especially among trans people. um, There's a spiritual push. um, And I think it's predominantly because the process, like when you're, when you're queer, you are, you essentially have to experience a divide between the no, normal community and you sort of have to distance yourself from it or you become distanced from it and i think that if you're, the community you're from is a predominantly like christian oriented or christian his, historically christian or like religious community then you experience a divide from that and so you therefore have to find yourself uh, spiritually in a community that is now completely uh, divorced from that religious oriented thing. So I've noticed that among the transgender community, there's a sort of um, a spiritual aspect to transitioning because when you do that, you let go of the spiritual community that you were part of previously, the Christian oriented one for most of us. Um <laughs> I don't know if that's even relevant. Um it
3: is it is hugely relevant. <laughs> yeah. I mean I think one of one of the things that we we spoke about as well and and, and again that's something I want to bring into the the book. Um, and I think that's what you're you're touching on here is that, that it's it's all it's it's not while they're on one in one respect um religious like, traditional religious communities say the Christian community or the Muslim community or the Jewish community um have their own have, have, have various diverse um, attitudes towards queerness and towards queer members of that community. But there's also something that goes beyond that um, and, and looks more at the, the spirituality of a person, which um, extends beyond just being part of a religious community, but but just goes deep into the, the, the sort of idea of wellness and well-being and um, just sort of spiritual health. Of an individual and I, I think that's something else I want to tap into in the volumes you know, we, we talk about religion and tend to think of it in terms of the, the big infrastructures but um, the, the, the actual personal spirituality of a person whether they belong to a religious tradition or not I think is really important and is hugely impacted by experiences of gender violence in whatever form it takes so I think that's something prior and I are going, planning to write a, a chapter together having a kind of conversation about all these things and um, kind of seeing where it's, where it will go. Um, and I think that's it, in a way that that we can kind of draw on some of these threads that often get neglected in discussions.
4: And I think there's something that has definitely been talked about a lot within the transgender community is um, gender. The gender violence, the aspect of it that you were just talking about, like the masculinity aspect and mm-hmm. how, um, Say like a male victim of rape has now experienced something that people see as detracting from his masculinity. Mm-hmm. Um, something that a lot of people notice when they when they come out as transgender is that once you start like passing, essentially, people and people taking you as whatever gender you have, you are. Um, once you tell them, like, so they'll accept you because they 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 don't realize that you're trans. But once you tell them that you're trans, then they change. And so if, for me, when I tell men that I'm transgender, and before that they were, they were perfectly accepting of me and they would do like the bro thing or like the man (laughs) thing with me. And that would be fine. And then once they find out that I'm transgender, there's this thing and they go, you were raised female. You didn't experience that childhood of maleness that I experienced. And I think that there's like this sort of disbelief in the head. Like how can you be male if you didn't experience the all the shit that I experienced growing up as a man, like I think there's this mm. there's this formation of masculinity that is entirely socially designed. It's not real, Um and that is that's mm. that that yeah. And so, like, if you're a trans man, you don't experience that. So there's a sort of um that's a very interesting perspective to be yeah. a man in the world without having experienced that formation of masculinity. Mm-hmm.
3: And, and I think the what we're kind of wanting to tap into is how these these reactions from other people they they, they can be mild and minor and and they might not be enough a physical attack on you but it's like we we I think <laughs> we talked to Prior earlier about just death by a thousand paper cuts the way these little well they're not little in a way but this may seem little to other people but these these reactions of people to um, queerness um, I think are, are very much a, a a genuine, and, uh, you know, a genuine form of gendered violence that build up and can really affect a person's spirituality and sense of self.
4: Well, if we're talking about, yeah, like um, the build up of certain reactions, um, like as in, you know, like a sort of, even if you're socially accepting of queer people, but not understanding or like, like even if you're not actively being violent towards them, mm-hmm. but you haven't like accepted who they are, then that leads to things like, in New Zealand, the lack of medical treatments mm. for transgender people. And it's like, me, treating transsexuality medically reduces death because, like, you know, most trans people will attempt to kill themselves or will if they're not treated medically. And so, like, didn't, you know, not having, like, having rules that say, oh, you're not allowed to physically attack a trans person, that's that's good. But then not having laws saying all trans people's medical needs are covered, um, that's... And- until I'm living in a society that completely covers publicly my my medical requirements like any other medical requirements, then I am not being accepted as a full valid person and my identity is not mm-hmm. being accepted so that's the kind of uh structural violence mm-hmm. which can lead to death and you know massive amounts of suffering mm-hmm. and so that's that, that that would that would be like an extreme version of the mm-hmm. structural violence
3: that, so, so that, yeah, that's a kind of <laughs> a potted version of all the things we're trying to gonna, we're going to try and cram into our chapter for the volume.
2: So you're pulling out some really sort of um, ideas that are we don't look at very often, no. and I think that's really important. And the idea of you know that personal spirituality, you know, not just you know big structural religion, is really important yeah. when we're talking about about gender and particularly the LGBTIQ community. Um, now, my last question was going to be, you know, do you think there's anything we need to draw particular mm-hmm. attention to? And I think we've kind of mm-hmm. covered that a little bit. So yeah. I wondered if you just wanted to, I, I, I think I heard right, you have both been a, been a part of hidden this hidden perspectives, bringing yeah. the arts out <laughs> of the closet. If you just wanted to maybe tell us a little bit about that program that you're sure. involved
3: in. Yeah, well, I, I can, I'll talk a little bit about the the kind of origins of it, then perhaps Pryor can give you a sense of what it, what you think about it as a, a participant. Um, so so I can't claim credit for the name Hidden Perspectives. It's actually, uh, we, we borrowed it with their blessing uh, from a project run by the University of Sheffield by Katie Edwards, who's co-editing the uh, Gender, Violence and Religion volumes with me. And it started there as a, kind of public engagement student engagement project um, and we katie was always encouraging me to start something similar here so so we broadened it out well there's this focus more on their religious studies department we broadened it out here um, to the faculty of arts and and moved from public engagement to, to very much student engagement so um, i run it with my colleague chip matthews and Our vision for it really is to provide both a platform for uh, queer student voices across the Faculty of Arts, but but also to provide a a kind of safe social and academic community, like a safe space for queer students to meet, talk about or get to know each other, socialise, but also talk about their work and their academic work as queer researchers and, and queer students. So it's It's going to be as I say it, we, we've just launched it and we started off with a um a movie screening and panel discussion earlier this semester and next year we're going to have a much more um a kind of a, an official launch um as well as some more social and academic events um I'll let you say what you you were at the movie screening prior, so you can maybe say what what it means to you and if how you consider it to be important.
4: It was just really nice to have um, something to go to that i I felt where I felt like there'll be a sense of community because I had felt kind of divorced from any sense of community I mean there are some there are some queer groups on campus but they're very disorganized and <laughs> the times that I've tried to go to them I haven't felt it, it just felt like attempting to get into like an exclusive social club and I wasn't welcome and um, so that was kind of disheartening and so this was sort of like a more uh, a less clicky kind of, just, just a general group and everyone could kind of come. And having the movie was a great idea, I mm-hmm. think, like because people could, like, watch the movie and kind of have that sort of sense of, you know, that test feeling that you get when you watch a movie <laughs> with a whole bunch of people and everyone's getting it. Um, but, you yeah, know, it was nice to know that there was, like, a sort of um, a group thing that wasn't just about, like, you know, maybe having hanging out or anything it was more about you know talk and 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 having that panel thing at the end was really good because you got to talk mm. about things mm-hmm. and I really liked it that we weren't just talking about like queer minorities we we're talking about minority groups in general mm-hmm. It each other that was really great having like people talk about like being a Maori queer mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. stuff like the Maori queer no um being, <laughs> you know like that kind of thing that was that was fantastic um yeah and uh, very intersect. Yeah.
2: <laughs> so it sounds like the, the project more comes from, you know, the academics and the academic community. And in that way, it's supported sort of from that higher up level. And, yes. you yeah. know, so that's really important because, you know, you're being supported by academics. And in yeah. that way, it's, you know, it's coming from a completely different perspective. And that's probably something that, you know, maybe other universities could think about, about taking on and supporting, you know, supporting, you know, their students in that way.
3: Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, Auckland University is very committed to um, queer just supporting um, all, all equity groups but and, and including queer staff and students. I mean, they really are excellent. Um, I think most all, all the faculties have their own uh, rainbow. We call them rainbow groups, which which are these supportive communities. But I think arts, this is the first time they've taken um, a kind of more academic lead. And I think that is really important because it's it's I think it, it's tapping into something that, that students can really invest in. And um, also it's, it's really tapping into academic staff and professional staff um, commitment to supporting queer students. So I'm really excited. I'm, I was really delighted to be asked to be part of this. And I'm, I'm deeply excited <laughs> about um, continuing on with it next year. Well,
2: it sounds like an absolutely fantastic project and we will definitely keep an eye out for your series, Rape Mm -hmm. Culture, Gender Violence and Religion, which will be coming out soon. And I'd like to thank you both for joining us today and sharing your thoughts on a critical topic.
3: Thank you very much, Brianne.
1: Thanks very much for that, Brianne. Wonderful to hear another interview from you. And um, again, on an important topic and ties in with... um, number of interviews that we've had um on that sort of religion gender intersection. Um so do check out those other interviews on our website. I can think of Lisbeth Michelson, Marta Chebotowska, Anna Fideli um and there's there's a few other ones up there as well, so do do have a look. Um the astute uh, listener from a couple of weeks ago will, will have noted that we record these uh introductions a couple of weeks at a time Um, so we we posted we posted Bruce Sullivan when we meant to post Finbar Curtis and it was all hilarious Um, but it got sorted out uh, thanks to Liam Sutherland um, flagging it up, um, so maybe you didn't notice, but maybe you did notice, and that'll have given you a nice little glimpse
0: behind the curtain. Well, this is uh, this is all because we're getting more organised these days. You exactly. know, the, the better the team runs, and the better our uh, organisation, uh, you know, the further ahead we are. It's good to be a few weeks ahead. Um, I've said before, you know, the in, the order that the interviews come in that they're recorded is not the order that they go out because we have to well, we have to get responses scheduled. We have to take our breaks, as always. We need to have a a few in the bank, um, you know, in case of emergencies. Mm -hmm. We need to think about, you know, you don't want to get six podcasts by the same interviewer from the same conference in (laughs) a row. God forbid. God God forbid. Um, So, you know, we record the intros um, separately, and we record them two weeks at a time, uh, two weeks ahead of time. So that they can stay relatively topical, but, you know, uh, we're we're busy men with, mm-hmm. with busy lives and, you know, so every two weeks we can manage to get together in the same room. The rest of the time, it's mostly just insulting each other on social media.
1: Yeah. Yeah. If you'd like to insult us on social media, you can do so um, on Facebook, on Twitter. On Google+. (laughs) Nice one. (laughs) Uh, Also on YouTube as well. Um, And even in the iTunes comment section, you can leave a nice insult there
0: um, for us. Drop us comments, uh, criticisms and questions into the you know, on our website, on the on the WordPress site, get involved in the discussion there, or even email us. Um, if you want to email a question or comment, uh, we might read it out on air, and that's editors at religiousstudiesproject dot com. Yes, we'd like to
1: think of ourselves as this sort of the online international seminar room,
0: as it were. So you know, yeah, yeah. So if anybody wants to send in a short lecture disguised as a question then send it to editors at religious studies project.com. Don't forget about our amazon.com.co.uk
1: and .ca links, and um, come back next week for another interview that Sydney has recorded for us. Um, the topic is South American Church-State Relations. That's with Marco Huaco Palomino. And uh, that'll tie quite nicely into our interview from a couple of weeks ago with Finbar Curtis on the, the sort of religious religion state relationship in the US and that'll be very nice um, to discuss the parallels there
0: other than that though Chris there's one thing you've forgotten to mention don't know thanks for listening (laughs)